I found a quote or a little um, blurb by Trungpa Rinpoche in um, the Shambhala magazine from this month, and I thought you might enjoy this. And it'll be good for those of you who are doubting yourself. Any of you? There might be a few of you. When you meditate, he says, when you meditate, you actually are meditating even when you think you're not. You have no choice, in fact. In your mind, you may be miles away from your meditation cushion, but you're still sitting there. There is still communication between your body and your mind. It might seem like a schizophrenic level of communication to be aware of both the irritations in your body and your distant thoughts. However, you are having a real experience of life, a real experience of reality, whether you like it or not. There is some magic, if you'd like to put it that way, some force of life that takes place. It doesn't matter whether you have an enormous pornographic show going on in your mind or whether you are having a delicious mental meal miles from the meditation hall. In actual fact, you are still sitting on your meditation cushion or in your chair. If you check in with yourself, you'll realize this. So now that we've cleared up that all of you are meditating, whether you think you are or not, (laughs) uh, the next question that might arise is, why am I doing this? Probably occurred to a number of you a number of times. Why are we doing this? So there's... um, a kind of conventional understanding, you could say, in the world about why we're meditating. And um, especially in these days when mindfulness has become so popular. And the conventional understanding is something along the lines of stress reduction, right? We want to be calmer, more relaxed, um, less stressed out, perhaps um, less reactive, happier, And many of your friends are those who haven't meditated. Those who've been on a retreat will know otherwise. But those who haven't been on a retreat, your friends or your family probably thought you were going to come here for a little health spa, you know, a little health spa vacation. (laughs) You know, that you were going to come here and you were going to be less stressed. Well, (laughs) it turns out that... um, if we want to go deeply into stress reduction, that it's um, a more stressful uh, activity than we would first suppose, right? I think some of you have probably experienced some stress in the last couple of days, just being, being in touch with reality or more in touch with reality. So the Buddha was really interested in this question. What causes stress? What causes tension or suffering or contraction of the heart and mind? And what reduces stress? What reduces the suffering in our hearts and our minds? So mostly we're here trying to figure out that uh, question, but we're not trying to figure it out by thinking about it. We've said this a number of times, but by observing life as it manifests in this heart, body, mind. So what's happening in your heart, body, mind is life. 
So as you're checking in with, with the, as you're arriving here, right, cultivating this presence, arriving here over and over again, you're connecting with life. And so it's through this connection that we hope to develop a deep understanding about the way life is. Or sometimes we call it the nature of reality. Now that sounds maybe a little, I don't know, esoteric or something, but, but it's pretty nitty-gritty. It's like, what is life like? What are the natural laws of life? Or how is this life? What's the um, characteristics of life? Because when we don't understand this, we tend to struggle against life. That's a lot of what a retreat is, is struggling against life, but but doing it mindfully, which is very different than doing it unmindfully. Because with mindfulness, we're hoping to learn from our struggles. We see that um, we fight the truth of the way life is. And when you fight the truth, unfortunately, the truth wins. (laughs) It's a pretty formidable opponent. So we watch how we struggle against the truth of the way things are. And and then we learn. And then slowly we learn, oh, um, this leads to suffering. Given the way reality is, this leads to suffering and this leads to happiness. So, for example, one of the things that we notice um, is that um, everything is changing all the time. The Buddha considered this like the core truth of the nature of reality or how things are. The truth is that everything is changing a lot, quickly, relentlessly, all the time. And so you might have seen this in your practice And mostly what happens when we see this is we think, oh, I'm doing something wrong. That's usually what we think. It's like I should be able to control this stream of change. I should be able to have a little bit more um, say in the matter of what comes up and how long it stays. And and, um, so we start to see um, this truth of constant change and the truth of um, kind of related to it, the uncontrollability of many things within this heart, body, and mind. So you're not doing it wrong if you're seeing that. You're actually having insight. You've stopped long enough to pay attention to the nature of reality, to the way things are. So we watch this stream of change and... and, um, the kind of this uncontrollable stream of change. And then what we see is we see how much we want to control it and how we try to, how we try to make what we want, what we like stay and how we try to get rid of what we don't like and how um, we try to um, make sure that only things that we like happen and make sure that things that we don't like don't happen. And we hold on. We see how we hold on. That's all the ways that we're struggling with the, reality with the truth of life. But what's different than out there is that we're doing it with mindfulness so we can learn, so we can see for ourselves directly in our experience what leads to suffering and what leads to peace or the deepest kind of happiness. So it it shakes us up a bit. 
it shakes us up a bit to be so in touch with reality. It kind of messes with our ideas. It messes with our ideas of who and what we are. It messes with our ideas about how life is. And so sometimes that's disconcerting. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes it, it's a little stressful. But it's, it's um, as uh, Ajahn Chow, a Thai teacher, calls it, it's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. It's, it's suffering that we learn from so that we can um, start to guide the heart and mind or steer the heart and mind in a direction that will actually produce happiness. So the deepest stress reduction is living in alignment with the truth. So the deepest stress reduction is, um, has to be non-attachment or non-clinging because of the nature of change. If we try to hold on with this, in this changing world, that's going to produce stress. And I'm mostly talking about interior experiences right now, experiences, heart, mind, body. I'm not even talking about things or people or all that. I'm talking about like our, right here, you know. You've experienced it yourself, right? You're having a nice, pleasant sitting. You like it. And then it's like, how can I make this day, right? You start clinging. And then you see, oh, that, that holding on, oh, that's stressful. It's stressful to try to hold on in a world of change. What's not stressful is not holding on. It's being with the flow. It's learning how to be with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences, letting them arise and pass away as they will. And, it's, and there's a kind of freshness there because it means that we're um, ready and willing to meet life. There's an openness of heart with this attitude. So, so I want to be clear that non-attachment does not mean disconnection. It doesn't mean detachment. It's interesting. Yesterday when Madeline asked that qu- the series of questions, um, and the first question, I, I might not get it exactly right, but was what helps you to be present? And she asked three times, right? And it was interesting for me to do that because each time the, que- the answer got deeper, and the third time, when the question is, what helps me to be present, the answer was non-attachment. It's the only way we can be truly present, because things move so fast. If we're holding on, then we can't be truly present, because that's not how the world moves. And you've tasted this. It's not so... Um, foreign to you. You've tasted moments, I'm sure, or you will in the coming days, where you're just with what's happening. There's no trying to get rid of it. There's no trying to keep it. There's no trying to control it. It's just pure experience and connection to experience. So you've had tastes of what this non-attachment and not clinging means. And usually when we really taste it like that, We like it. We know that, oh, there's no stress in this. Or you could say there's freedom in this. Freedom of heart and mind. 
So as we're connecting to our own experience to understand the truth of reality, how things are, um, we find that uh, there are five energies, five classic energies that can come up that um, make it a bit rough, that can be quite challenging. These are known as the five hindrances. I'm sure some of you have heard of them. I'm sure all of you have experienced them. So these five energies, which I'm going to talk about a little bit, are um, desire or wanting, um, aversion or not wanting, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. We usually, most of us, have our favorites. I know in my early practice, aversion and sleepiness, those were my favorites. And then sometimes we get to have um, what we call multiple hindrance attacks, where you get to experience like three or four or five at once. (laughs) You may have had one of those. (laughs) It's late afternoon and you're... um, feeling really restless, you just want out of the hall, right? And then you get so restless, you just wear yourself out and you start falling asleep, right? And then as you're falling asleep, you're like, what am I doing here? You know, I don't know how to do this. I was crazy to even think about coming here. And then you're like, I could be having some pizza right now. (laughs) So you start thinking about that. And then they start, and to top it all off, they start drilling. And you're like, oh, I can't stand that. I just wanted to go away. You've just covered all five hindrances. <laughs> so it's possible to do it in, wow, 30 seconds, really. <laughs> so often, though, when these hindrances come up, we become convinced that we're a bad meditator. That's our conclusion. And I just want um, to just let you know that that's not true. <laughs> I was talking a number of years ago and I was writing a talk on hindrances. I was talking to my partner. I, I was mentioning to him that I was giving a talk on the hindrances. He's like, oh, good. And I'm like, most people don't go, oh, good, when you say you're going to do a talk on the hindrances. I'm like, why did you say, oh, good? And he said that it was a relief to him to hear that this is acceptable, predictable, and unremarkable. that the hindrances are acceptable, predictable, and unremarkable. Acceptable because they're just part of life. Predictable because you can count on them showing up. And unremarkable because um, they're not personal. They're not you. They're not who you are. They're just um, what are called mind states in Buddhism that arise because of certain conditions. And we can learn how to be with them with mindfulness. That's, that's our, our, our job, is to figure out how we can meet these energies so that they don't overwhelm us. And so that we can also learn, as we've said a number of times, whatever your experience is, you can learn about life from that experience. So it's not your fault if you've been experiencing desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. It doesn't mean you're a bad meditator. It's just like, it's part of meditation. Meditation is these energies. So the first, um, so mindfulness of the hindrances, the first thing that's really helpful is if you notice one of these energies is just to name it. 
naming it is um, a big part of the game because it means that you know and you're recognizing in the moment what's going on. And a lot of their power comes when we don't see them. When we don't see them, they can really overwhelm us. But when we can name it, then we know in that moment that there's clarity and that we're seeing what's happening. And then we explore, like, what is this? Like, for example, let's start with desire. So at lunch, I noticed they had the lemon bars. I like the lemon bars. They're very good. And so when I went through the line... um, I try not to eat too much dessert, so I kind of cut a lemon bar in half. They were pretty big, right? So I cut one in half, and I took it, and I went outside. I was eating with my teacher friends here, very aware that my lemon bar was sitting there waiting for me when I was after when I was done eating. So, um, But, you know, I kind of wanted it, but it was all right. There wasn't too much desire in the mind. Then I took a bite of it, and it was like the wanting of more lemon bar, it like hit me like, you know that lemon, it just went, and so I was like, oh, wow, why did I take only half a bar of lemon bars, you know, (laughs) because if I was going to get more, I was going to have to come all the way back in here, which was actually the idea, which was why I took half, but, (laughs) and then I was like, oh, that first bite, it was so strong, the wanting more, it was like, oh, it would have been better not to take that first bite. It was like unpleasant. The wanting was so unpleasant, right? Now, if I had been judging that wanting as bad and that it shouldn't be happening, I wouldn't have learned anything, right? We can't learn if we're like, this is bad, go away. But because I was interested, I, I, I had no problem. I mean, it was unpleasant, but it was not a problem to me that that was arising. I, I could really see... Um, just how that, that, that sense contact, that really pleasant first sense contact really leads to wanting more. And then it's very interesting with desire or wanting um, because it kind of tells you the story if you really listen to it. So I could see it kind of under the surface when I was wanting the lemon bar. It was like, if you have lots of lemon bar, you're going to be happy. That's like, that's the story that desire makes up, Right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's good to see this, right? So if we're judging wanting all oh, this is really bad, we can't see that kind of like little voice saying, "Just have some more and you'll be happy." Right? <laughs> Desire always co- arises with delusion. It it um it it kind of paints rose-colored pictures of things so that see we want to learn about that we want to see it for ourselves we don't want to just hear me say it we want to like see it in our own experience so we can really deeply learn that because then we like then if we see that we're like you know what i think that maybe more lemon bar is not the answer to happiness you know (laughs) like like if you see it you can consider this option but if you don't see it and desire is just operating, it's just like, I'm going to have more lemon bar. All right? And so we have to pay attention. Or aversion, right? So we get, again, we can get interested in, in, in it and name it. So we're sitting in the hall and um, 
having a good sitting right, and then they start drilling out there. And then the mind gets averse. It's an unpleasant sound. We don't like it. We get averse to it. And then aversion tells its own version of stories. It's like, if that drilling wasn't going on, I probably would get enlightened. You know, like, it's really the fault of that drilling that I am unhappy right now. And I got to get rid of it. And if I don't get rid of it, I'll never be happy. <laughs> and some, so in some ways, it's like great that there's drilling. I mean, t- unfortunately, for the weekend, it probably won't be happening. I don't know, but it probably won't. But it's good practice because it, it forces us to look at um, aversion and how it, well, how it manifests. Is it possible for the drilling to happen, to be fully aware of it, and to not be averse? So this is understanding and connecting with the nature of reality. <laughs> Body sensations, a great place to look at wanting and not wanting, at desire and aversion. So we're having that pleasant sitting, right? Maybe we're floating a little bit or there's some pleasant tingling happening in the body or a sense of real deep relaxation. Great, enjoy it. And then notice, when does desire or wanting start to enter that picture? What happens to the heart and the mind when desire piggybacks onto a pleasant experience, right? Is it possible to be with a pleasant experience without trying to hold on to it? Which is more peaceful, to be with a pleasant experience trying to hold on to it or to be with a pleasant experience without holding on? (laughs) This is the kind of stuff we're interested in. Or what about painful experiences, which Chaz was talking about this morning? So there's, um, let's say there's a pain in the knee. Where's the stress? Where's the real problem? So usually we think the real problem is the painful sensations. That's, we're pretty sure about that. But check it out. Is that really where the problem is? Or is, or is the stress, the fact that we want it to go away, that there's aversion? And then aversion with, for example, with a pain, aversion, um, you know, can have that feeling of not liking it, but then it can make up all kinds of stories about what the pain means, what it means in the future, <laughs> how we can't bear it. So without mindfulness, we're just going to believe those thoughts. But with mindfulness of aversion, feeling it in the body, noticing the kinds of thoughts, we can go, hmm, maybe I can be okay with some unpleasant sensations. Maybe I can, Maybe it's possible to be with them without aversion. Maybe a second, two seconds. It's not like we try to make them. It's not like we try to um, make ourselves be okay with the pleasant sensations. No, it's more like we, we, we investigate the truth of what our real experience is, and then we can play around with that a little bit. We get curious. So often when we come to meditating, we hear 
um, you know, we hear me up here saying, okay, non-clinging, non-attachment. Um, and then we think, okay, I have to sit down and be non-clinging or, or not attached to that, um, those sensations in the knee. That way leads to suffering. <laughs> what leads to freedom is to be totally honest with yourself about what is happening. So any time you see here some ideal of what you think should be happening in your practice and, and trying to make your practice fit what you think should be happening, just ask yourself, what is happening in the moment? That's the way we steer. So watch out for that, like, it should be this way, I should be doing that. It's like, no, what is happening? Oh, I hate that pain in the knee. I gave somebody permission today in um, an interview. I don't remember exactly who it was, but I gave somebody permission. I said, if there are sensations in the body and you don't like them, go ahead, hate them. What's that like? That's your truth. That's the truth of the moment. What's it like to hate the pain in your body? What happens when you connect with that? Do you keep hating it? Does it change? Do you hate it more? Do you hate it less? Does hate strengthen? Does hate um, weaken? Does it go away? Does compassion arise? Now we check it out. It's like a grand experiment. I found a couple of sentences from Thomas Merton kind of related to this, being honest about what's really happening. Thomas Merton, the famous uh, Catholic mystic, Finally, I am coming to the conclusion that my highest ambition is to be what I already am. <laughs> it's a little bit, it's pointing in that direction. Then another form of um, desire and aversion that we can feel on retreat is um, Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. So, so your Vipassana romance is that person that you see across the meditation hall. And um, you, you're pretty sure that they're the one. <laughs> Here is your life partner just waiting for you. <laughs> and then, you know, you, the stories start about what that um, will be like and what kind of person they are. <laughs> Name it, wanting, desire. Or Vipassana Vendetta, it's that person who just drives you nuts. You can't stand how they walk. <laughs> or how they close their door in the hallway. You're sure that if they weren't here, your retreat would be going a whole lot better. <laughs> Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> oh, it's aversion. Yeah. They're both projection. It's kind of interesting sometimes to check out at the end of the retreat your Vipassana romance and your Vipassana Vendetta, and often you find out that you, you totally invented the whole thing and that the person isn't anything like you thought. I had a retreat when I was younger where I had a, a Vipassana romance with the person next to me. 
very convenient, right? Sitting right, <laughs> sitting right next to me, <laughs> and um, it was a long retreat. <laughs> and finally, actually, it got to be too much. I moved out of the hall. <laughs> I moved my cushion into my room. <laughs> it was like it was just it was out of control. Um, <laughs> And then, and then I had a person on the retreat that, oh, he just drove me nuts. He snored in the meditation hall. And that got out of control, too. I wrote him a note, which is really a bad thing to do. <laughs> Don't, but see, I didn't know how to deal with aversion. Like, I had so much aversion to the, to the snoring that, that um, I was, like, out of control. I wrote him a note suggested he take a nap. <laughs> 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 I probably even signed it Meta or something like that, you know? <laughs> this, this was my first long retreat, just in my defense. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, so I know about aversion. Um, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't handle it. It was so painful, right? Now, over the years, I've really learned how to work with aversion. I have a much greater... <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> he knows me well. <laughs> it really helped me to understand that aversion wasn't personal. That there wasn't... It wasn't like there was something wrong with me. It was like, oh, that's just my challenge, is aversion. How am I going to work with this? What am I going to learn? It's like the making me bad because of it. Oh, that was what was so painful. It's just aversion. So we turn towards it. We turn towards wanting. We turn towards aversion to see what we can learn, to see how we can not leave notes for people. to see how we cannot spread suffering and how we can find peace within ourselves, even if there's intense um, emotional energy. And we'll talk more about emotions, believe me, they'll be coming. I found this great um, little story in National Geographic, it's about mosquitoes. And um, it says that mosquitoes, so like when it rains, have you ever wondered what happens to mosquitoes that are flying? Well, you probably haven't wondered about it, but anyway, somebody did. Wondered about mosquitoes and what happens to them when it rains because they say that like a, mosquito, like a raindrop hitting a mosquito is like a car hitting a human. It's, a, it's an intense experience for a mosquito because their small raindrops are pretty forceful, right? So they figured out how mosquitoes survive getting rained on and the way they survive is by not resisting the raindrop so if they resisted the raindrop they'd get smashed by it but they go with the raindrop so when the raindrop contacts them they go with the raindrop and then they slip out from under it and I thought that this was great for um, meditation when like you get really hit with um, some emotion that's really strong like aversion, or, or like loneliness. So loneliness is coming really hard, and, and you're about to get plastered by it, right? Like it's just... 
you've had those emotional experiences, some of you, I'm sure, where it's just like something's just coming and you're just getting bowled over. So what would it mean not to resist that? You know, like, like the mosquito not resisting the raindrop. It would mean to name it, perhaps, and to acknowledge what it is. Oh, this is loneliness. And then slip out from under it. <laughs> if it's too overwhelming, then slip out from under it and get your attention somewhere else. Do some, you know, move fast. Do something that brings your balance back. But when we resist, that's when we really get plastered. <laughs> Non-resistance, turning towards what's happening naming it, being with it, as long as it's helpful and is balanced. And then when it's too much and it's too strong and um, we're feeling kind of overwhelmed, then slip out and find some other place for your attention that helps you to rebalance, reorganize. Here's another uh, quote I found today in the Shambhala Sun, July 2015 So that's just this month. It said, life is like a continuous quiz show where the only question ever asked is, how are you going to manage whatever is happening now without confusing yourself and creating suffering? (laughs) I like that. Life is a continuous quiz show and you just get the same question (laughs) over and over again. How am I going to manage what's happening right now without confusing myself and creating more suffering? Oh my, I'm only, I have a lot left. Hmm. Okay, let's move on. So we'll talk a little bit about sleepiness and restlessness. So we have this kind of pair, um, wanting and not wanting, desire and aversion. Then we have sleepiness and restlessness are kind of a, a pair too. So we've talked a fair amount about sleepiness. I don't know if I need to say a whole lot more. As I said, it was one of my favorites when... In my early practice, it, it doesn't, I, I don't get sleepy that much anymore practicing, but in my early practice, I used to fall asleep almost every sitting. A good sitting was when I would fall asleep about 25 minutes in. That was a good sitting. The, the, the hard sittings were when I fell asleep five minutes in, which happened after 6 p.m. every night. So I'm a morning person. I can get up in the morning, have lots of energy, right? Um, and as the day goes on, it goes down. So really, for a long time, I, I've, I fell asleep most sittings about 25 minutes in. Um, and so I'm here to tell you that that's okay and that you'll, your practice still develops. I think what happened for me is like 25 minutes was all of reality that I really wanted to deal with at one time. No, I, I'm serious. It was like, oh. <laughs> reality is intense. Like really being in touch with reality, the reason why we're so distracted so much of the time is because reality is so intense. You know, so for me, it was like 25 minutes, like, oh, I've had enough, and I would fall asleep. That's okay. It was fine. And then if you count the walking periods, too, like even if you sleep halfway through every sitting and you do all the walkings, you're still awake 75% of your practice, you know, your formal practice. And then, yeah, then we add all the in-betweenings, right, all the in-between times, eating, meditation, everything. Wow, that really ups the percentage. So don't get too worried about it is what I'm trying to say. 
And then one person in a group today, she was like, you, you, you've all had the meditators nod, right? You're going, like that. She's like, I'm really worried that, like, I'm not going to catch myself. Like, <laughs> like I'm going to go all the way down, right? And I said to her, and I think it's true. I don't think I know anybody who's gone all the way down. <laughs> Do you know anybody, Chaz, who's gone all the way down? There's this great video of a... <laughs> oh, the one you were telling us yeah. about. Yeah. Did he go all the way? All the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I don't... I don't know anybody who's gone all the way down forwards. Yeah. But I do know a couple of people who've gone all the way down on <laughs> sideways. <laughs> but that doesn't hurt quite as much, right? I mean, like, if you, <laughs> if you went all the way down forward, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> but on the side, you know, you, you, you fall on the next cushion or your arm, and it's not so bad. I used to be so sleepy, I would do standing up meditation in the evenings and I would almost fall asleep during standing up meditation. I learned a lot about perseverance from sleepiness. It was a good teacher of perseverance because I just kept going. Yeah, I was young like you guys. I had more, when we get older, it changes sometimes when we're young. It's like we have that, right? That energy. It was great. So from 6 o'clock to 11 o'clock, it would be really, really hard because I'd be sleepy. But I kept going, and that was good. All right, enough on sleepiness. Restlessness. So sleepiness, not enough energy. Restlessness, um, a lot of extra energy, right? When restlessness gets really intense, you're pretty sure you're going to die if you don't get out of the hall. I mean, that's like, that's the story, right? I'm going to die if I don't get out of here. So far, I do believe nobody has died of restlessness. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. You could be the first, but, but probably not. Restlessness, I find it really helpful to, um, <laughs> to give it a lot of space. Restlessness doesn't like... Well, there's a couple ways of dealing with restlessness. One is you can try like really getting simple counting breaths sometimes. Count up to 10 and start over again. Or count up to 10 and count back down. Or count up to 5 and down. Or um, Sometimes that helps. But sometimes what helps with restlessness is to give it a wide space. Like if you're being with the breath, you can try being with the whole body and see if that much space works better for restlessness. It likes to move around a lot. Or um, hearing sometimes is a good anchor when there's a lot of restlessness because it's wide, lots of space. I find that resistance to restlessness is what's really painful. So have you ever sat down and you're trying to relax, right? And you're trying to quiet your mind. So you're trying to relax, you're trying to quiet your mind, you're trying to relax, you're trying to quiet your mind. And then suddenly... Like, I'll have this happen. Sometimes suddenly I'll be like, oh, that's not what's happening. Relaxation isn't what's happening. What's happening is restlessness. And then it'll be like, oh, okay, it's just restlessness. And then there'll actually be relaxation because I'm being with what's really happening rather than trying to resist it somehow. And sometimes I just let my awareness be kind of big and just let restlessness do what it needs to do in there. 
if you try to follow it too much, you start going like this, right? It's kind of, but if you just let your awareness be big and restlessness just kind of moves around. Restlessness feels like this. And then the last hindrance, doubt, which is very um, insidious. It's very convincing. It likes to um, give lots of advice. (laughs) It can get really, doubt can um, team up with our inner critic and tell us everything that we should be doing or everything that we're doing wrong or doubting ourselves so we can doubt like, I can't do this, I shouldn't be here. Everybody else is doing it better. You look around the hall and you're like, look at all of them. They look quiet and calm and I'm not feeling that way. There must be something wrong with me. There's this um, character in Buddhism named Mara and uh, he's kind of a trickster character. And um, one of his favorite tactics is doubt. And so there's these stories, often these stories of nuns or monks, like sitting under a tree, meditating, and then Mara will come along and say, why are you meditating? You're wasting your life. You should be out enjoying sense pleasures. What are you doing this for? So Mara, like trying to derail derail the practice. And you can feel this in your own, in your own experience. When doubt comes up, there's like this derailing of, um, or a paralyzing of your practice. So what happens in these stories, that the magic, you could say the magic words that transforms this experience with Mara or doubt is, I see you, Mara. So the monk or the nun will say, I see you, Mara. And that's when Mara's defeated. So it's that knowing what's happening, seeing what's happening. I see you doubt. And so then the the last line of these sutras will always be something like, so Mara went away and sat in the dirt and scratched in the dirt looking dejected. And um, (laughs) it's like, oh, she beat me or whatever, you know, in Dharma combat. (laughs) So when doubt starts to nibble, maybe doubt in yourself, it might be doubt in the practice, it might be doubt in us teachers. And when it starts nibbling, you can just say, oh, Mara, I see you, or doubt, I see you. And you know that in those moments, you don't have to believe what doubt is saying. Now, there is some usefulness to thinking about whether this is a good practice for you, whether we know what we're talking about, like these are all good things to contemplate at some point. But we recommend that you contemplate them after the retreat. That's when you'll have more perspective, right? And right now it's just, oh, there's doubt. One thing great about this week is you don't have to make any decisions about anything. (laughs) You know, you can let it go. Am I any good at this? Ah, Let it go. Is this a practice for me? Let it go. Does this stuff work? Let it go. You know, and then afterwards, yeah, think about those things. I call it making a date with doubt. You know, make a date with doubt for the day after the retreat. Because sometimes doubt actually has good questions. 
But when it derails us when we're practicing, that's not so helpful. You can notice when the hindrances are present, and you can also notice when they're not present. So perhaps there's been strong aversion, but then it it ends, it's away. You can notice that. Our sleepiness ends and there's energy. You can notice that. You can notice how the heart and mind feel when the hindrances are absent, when there isn't wanting or not wanting or grass or... um, sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. So that's also part of practice, noticing when the mind is clearer and these energies are not present. So we have mindfulness as a um, protection and as a a dharma tool (laughs) Um, when these energies arise. I want to say just a few words about um, another important quality that helps us meet um, the hindrances, and that's metta, or love, or compassion. So I would say that um, sometimes when these energies are really strong and, we, and we're trying to live in this crazy world of change and uncontrollability, what do we have for our tools and for our strength? We have mindfulness and we have metta. So metta is that quality that we're learning um, very directly in the afternoon sitting, but it's a quality that we also want to begin to integrate into our practice, into our vipassana practice, and that's um, the quality of kindness. So looking upon experience with a, you could say, a kind-hearted awareness or a kind-hearted mindfulness. Start to explore what that's like to meet perhaps the hindrances with um, kindness. So aversion arises. So aversion might arise, and then we have aversion to aversion, right? Um, what's it like aversion arises, and we look at that with kindness? Sleepiness arises, and we meet that with kindness. Doubt arises, and we meet that with kindness. We, we experiment. We try to um, understand what that means for ourselves. Metta is a beautiful quality because it makes the heart very strong, the mind very strong, but not in a conventional way. So we usually think of strong as hard, right? Something that's hard is strong. But the truth is that something that's hard is brittle. It can easily be broken. But something that is flexible and um, yielding, that's true strength. It's like the bamboo. Bamboo trees, there can be a hurricane and they get you know, whipped around by the hurricane, but because they can bend and yield, they survive. They're strong. So I think of metta as a quality that gentles our heart so that it has a yielding, soft quality to it. 
and that yielding actually makes room for life to, um, for us to be touched by life. One teacher named Jan Frazier says that um, we learn to present a yielding surface rather than an impenetrable shield. So there's this heart, the heart is an impenetrable shield, and then the heart is a yielding surface. So we, we learn this. And this, this kindness actually helps us to see more clearly what's happening. There was a great um, healer named George Washington Carver. He was a man born into slavery in the mid-1850s in this country. And later in his life, he became a great healer. And when he talked about his abilities to heal, he said, All the flowers talk to me, and so do hundreds of little living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. Maybe that's what meditation really is, and that we learn what we know by watching and loving everything that arises and passes away in this heart, body, and mind. So I'd like to end with um, a story of the power of metta in the um, face of that which seems dangerous and scary. So in the sutras, they talk about one time when the Buddha was um, walking in the woods or walking on a road, and uh, he had a, a cousin who wanted to take over the Sangha, so had this vendetta thing with him. And anyway, in this instance, the cousin decided he wanted to kill the Buddha. So he sent this raging elephant, like coming down the path when he knew the Buddha would be walking on this path. And a raging elephant's not a great thing to have coming down a path at you, right? It's said that the Buddha um, stopped the raging elephant with the power of metta. And so I've heard that story in the sutras, and I always would kind of think, oh, well, come on, this is like a legend, or it's metaphorical or something, right? It seemed unlikely to me that that could really happen. But then I read this story, this book, a few years ago, it was called Kinship with All Life by somebody named J. Allen Boone. And it's a book, it was written in the 1850, no, 1950s. And it tells about a woman who had a, um, she called it a zoo for happiness. And it was a, um, a zoo where she took the world's um, bad snakes, she took bad snakes and she tamed them. Um, and her name was Grace Wiley. So this is a true story. Um, And so, like, people, if they had problems, snakes, they would send them to her zoo for happiness. And um, (laughs) so it said the tougher, the meaner, and the more venomous they were, the better she liked them. And so what she would do is she would tame them, and she had this taming room, and people could watch her tame the the snakes. And so um, it was called a gentling room. And so it was this bare room, and it just had this table in the middle. And so... um, 
they would bring in the cage and she would be at one end of the room. She would have two sticks. One, one was padded. That was her petting stick. <laughs> and then she had a stick in case she got attacked to try to protect herself. And she would stand there and they'd bring the um, snake in and let it out. And um, she would tame the snake. And this is how she tamed the snake. As the snake hits the table, there is a flash of movement almost too fast for the eyes to follow, the swift coiling of its body into a defense or attack position. The big fellow from Texas is set to fight anyone or anything for survival. The big fellow is a a, a rattlesnake. But to his obvious astonishment and bewilderment, there is nothing to fight. There is no moving target to strike. Only the bare walls and the motionless woman facing him. The snake head dart, snake's head darts apprehensively in all directions, trying to discover from which direction trouble is going to come. But nothing happens, nothing at all. Why does Miss Wiley not do something with the stick in her hands? Why does the snake, with all its noise and threatenings, not take at least a practice lunge at Miss Wiley? The truth is that Miss Wiley has been doing a most important something to the big snake ever since it came sliding out of the box, but you could not tell she was doing it because it was entirely mental. From the moment that Miss Wiley first saw the big snake, she had been silently talking across to it. Outwardly, she appeared to be doing nothing at all. Actually, she was proving the potency and effectiveness of her favorite rule of action in all relationship contexts that all life, regardless of its form, classification, or reputation, will respond to genuine interest, respect, appreciation, admiration, affection, gentleness, courtesy, and good manners. (laughs) The big, tall rattler was being lovingly showered with these qualities, undoubtedly for the first time in its experience. So basically, she was sending the rattler meta. Had your ears been attuned to the silent universal language of the heart, you would have heard in detail the flow of soundless good talk that was moving from Miss Wiley to the snake. Not down there to it as a lower form of life, but across to it as a fellow expression of life. And in that good talk, among other things, you would have heard her praising the snake for its many excellent qualities, assuring it that it had absolutely nothing to fear and reminding it again and again that it had simply come to a new home where it would always be appreciated, loved, and cared for. All this was communicated without the slightest sound or gesture from Miss Riley. As Miss Wiley continued her reassuring talk, you would witness a blossoming of this unique gentling technique. You would see the big snake slowly uncoil and cautiously stretch itself the full length of the table, finally resting its head within inches of where Miss Wiley was standing. Then the first physical movement of Miss Wiley as she reached across and began gently stroking the snake's back, in the beginning with a soft padded petting stick and then there being no resistance with her two bare hands. And as you watched this most unbelievable performance, you would have seen the snake arch its long back and cat-like undulations in order to better feel the affection-filled ministrations. So she tamed deadly snakes with metta. So maybe those places within ourselves that we consider so dangerous and scary, perhaps they can be tamed also with the power of metta. It's a great book, 
kinship with all life. The last chapter is about his friendship with a fly. Freddy the fly. It's really great. You're ready for it by then. It takes, you know, you have to read the rest of the book. <laughs> but Freddy the fly was the same way. He would only come if you really were radiating metta. If you were radiating anything else, he wouldn't show up. The power of metta is very powerful. So we're practicing strengthening that quality in our hearts so that it becomes more of a default of how we um, face or how we meet life in all of its forms, all of the forms within this heart, body, and mind. Also all the forms out there, people, other people, other beings, other things. meeting with the sense of gentleness and kindness, appreciation. Well, my friends, I think we have to end for the evening. It's getting late. Let's sit for a minute or two. May our hearts and minds grow in mindfulness and metta, giving us the strength to be able to meet things as they are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.